0: I think it's time that we start the conversation to silence the shame. Silence the shame. Silence
1: the
2: shame. Silence is the difference between treatment or pain, life or
1: death. Silence the shame.
2: Speak up now
1: and silence. Silence. Silence.
3: Silence the shame.
2: Hello, hello, everyone. This is Shanti Das, the host of the Silence the Shame podcast, and I'm sitting here with my co-host, Free the Vision.
3: What's up, Shanti? How you been? I'm doing well. Keeping busy? I'm keeping busy. Keeping productive.
2: Yes, I have been on the road, Right. but it's all good stuff mm-hmm. out here spreading the message of silence to shame, so um, I'm grateful to be back in the studio. Mm-hmm. Another important topic today, uh, mm-hmm. we're going to be addressing addiction and mental health, and can you believe this is episode 23? I say this at mm-hmm. the beginning of every mm-hmm. podcast, yeah. but it still feels like, wow, we're like rolling. We're moving. What a blessing. I'm really
3: I like this topic. Yeah, I think I like this, this is well, this is a it's serious necessary. topic
2: for so many people. And I think, you know, a lot of people that struggle with addiction as well as um, mental health disorders. You don't understand how the two really go hand in hand. Absolutely. And so very honored to have um, our guests on the show today so that we can shed a light on this most important topic. Uh, first, I would like to welcome this gentleman who's sitting next to me that's actually physically in the studio with us. Um, who I have um, had the f- good fortune to work with over the probably the last six months now about that? Um, on some important work. Everyone, let's welcome Tony Sanchez to the show. He is the director for the Office of Recovery Transformation for the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. Welcome, Tony. Hey. Uh-huh. Welcome Glad back. To,
3: welcome
0: back. Right, right, right. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. <laughs> Thank you
2: again, Tony. Huh. Really, really honored to have you. And on the phone, um, we have our guest, Anjali Arnold who is a national certified counselor and who is also my big sister mm-hmm. and Joan Peter, who is as well a national certified counselor and they are calling in today from Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome ladies. Welcome.
1: Hi, Hi, thanks for having us. Yes. Thank you.
2: You guys doing okay today?
1: We are doing well. How about you?
2: Awesome. We are excited and ready to get going. So without further ado, I think we'll, we'll jump right in for you. Let's good? Go. Mm-hmm. Okay. I would like to direct our first question. Um, Anjali, to you and Joan, you, you guys can kind of both share this answer. Um, the question is, I know you both are trained to work with mental health clients and addiction clients. Why did you all choose to focus on both populations?
1: So, um, this is Anjali. I decided to enter this field because of some challenges of a family member who at the time had been suffering from depression, anxiety, ADHD, Um, And when he first went into hospital for those challenges and came out, the psychiatrist also stated that he needed to address substance use issues, Hmm. which Mm -hmm. um, to our surprise, really didn't understand why the doctor was saying that. And so the more I started um, doing research and looking at the challenges he went through, um, I personally came to realize that the two really do go hand in hand. So when I decided to go back to school, I wanted to make sure that I understood um, both challenges because um, the way that you treat mental health issues as well as addiction issues is similar, but um, there are some differences.
2: Thank you, Anjali. Joan? Joan?
4: Yeah, this is Joan. Um, in thinking about the question, I guess I never really thought consciously about this being separate, um, but that's a great question. Um, I didn't enter graduate school on the addiction track, but after taking a few addiction courses, I was hooked and really intrigued by what I heard um, and wanted to learn more. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I still feel that way today. So if I didn't, Plan B would have to be in place. Another driving force for me is a family history of addiction. Mm-hmm. that. Um, it's definitely been a motivating factor doing this focus repair.
2: Mm. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, Joan. I think oftentimes, um, which is probably the case with Anjali and myself, you know, whether it's yourself or a family member going through it, sometimes life pushes you in that direction. And I think that's why both of us are now doing the work in this space. And so, again, thank you guys for being on. Um, next, I'd like to um, to ask you, Anjali, Now, as we all know, alcohol use, and now in many states, marijuana, is so ingrained in our society. Can you share with our listeners, what is addiction? Like, what does it mean to be addicted?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, So I know the two substances that you asked about, alcohol and marijuana, are probably the two substances that are most used in our society today. Mm -hmm. Everyone, when we talk about addiction, addiction can take on many forms. There are other forms of addiction, mm-hmm. um, more than just the use of substance. Okay. There are process addictions, you know, uh, people who are addicted to gambling or playing mm-hmm. video games. Uh, there are people who have sex addiction, a- addiction um, shopping, you know. So when we look at addiction... It's basically when there is some compulsivity either in your use or actions um, such as playing video games. You know, someone who plays video games 24-7, someone who shops um, all the time despite negative consequences. I know the misnomer when we talk about addiction and particularly when we're talking about substance. Addiction. People have a tendency to think um, it's the amount that they consume, mm-hmm. but it's not really it. I mean, we have a lot of people who, you know, can function great in their life that may go home and have a drink or two every night. So addiction is really when the activity um, becomes adverse. It causes you adverse um. Consequences in your life, and you continue to either use or do the activities despite the negative consequences.
2: Because you know, I think you know, free. We see this on on morning show TV all the time, where mm-hmm. it's like, "Oh, after a long day, I'm gonna go have my glass of wine, yeah, 100%. right," and think nothing of it. But even you know, Anjali, when I was going through my depression, I talk about it. You know, sometimes we use. Alcohol, Tony, as a coping mechanism, right? You know, I felt like I was having a a drink at home, but it was party of one, right? So the problem (laughs) started coming in when it started becoming two drinks and three drinks and four drinks, and I look up and I'm there by myself. That's a problem, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, today in the news, sadly, um, some of you may know I'm uh, an actor who— in the last couple of years he's played on the soap opera. Christoph St. John, him. right?
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I remember him from the Coffee Show. Mm-hmm. And um, while his exact cause of death hasn't been announced, speculation that it was from alcohol overdose. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, but, for-
1: and, um, you know, without getting into too much psyched, um, a lot of people think that one drink is defined by, you know, the number of drinks that you literally have. But reality is it's actually defined by the ounce of alcohol that you have.
4: Interesting.
1: So, one beer, 12 ounce, that's a drink. One glass of wine is no more than five ounces of wine. Um, when we talking about hard liquor, that's one and a half ounces. It's a lot that goes into it, but it is it is very easy for someone to drink too much. Um, and now, you know, with the opioid crisis, is a whole nother discussion. I
0: also want to bring to light that you know, a lot of times we associate addiction with the amount that's that's being consumed, mm-hmm. right? But also, you know, I know individuals, or I've heard of individuals who. Who, who say I only drink once a year or you know I man you know I I turn it up on on, on, on New year's but right. on New Year's you're ending up you know incarcerated with a DUI That's every right. time or you're getting mm-hmm, into physical mm-hmm. altercations because of because of your use then it's a problem as well so you know a lot of times we tend to look at the amount or the or 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 the frequency, but it's, you know, um, we also need to look at the results. Even if it's just one one time, you know what I mean? I only do it on my birthday, but if on your birthday you are...
2: Drinking it, yourself into oblivion? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. It's a problem. Thank you for that. Joan, I, I want to um, ask you this next question. There's been controversy about addiction being a brain disease rather than a moral decision. Can you touch on this?
3: Mm.
4: Um, I mean, even more recently, there's been a lot of advances in um, addiction science research really over the last 20 years. And it's, kind of, it's helped us give an understanding of addiction as a complex disease affecting the brain rather than a moral failure, which, you know, that's the way it was looked at in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and drug, drug and alcohol issues have been around for a while. Um, but in the past, addiction was viewed as a when Users were punished basically telling someone who was um, abusing substances or who was going through or struggling with addiction that they've made the choice and it's their fault. Um, And this stereotype still continues today to some degree. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe, when I think about it, I don't believe it's a conscious choice made by many to carry this or maintain this stereotypic thinking. Mm -hmm. But it is the way that society has viewed um, addiction if they don't have the knowledge or don't know somebody who's who's also dealing with addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I recently read a survey uh, that was in, done in 2008. It found that more than a third of the general public agree with the statement saying that quitting is a matter of willpower.
3: Mm-hmm. So when you put this mm-hmm.
4: in perspective and you consider the person struggling, um, it makes sense that they're going to internalize and believe that they're is as a choice rather than something that can't be treated so they can live a healthier life. Um, I just have a thought about punishment also. It, in a way, um, treating it as a punishment has the opposite effect. It promotes isolation. It reduces chances of someone entering recovery um, and just a whole host of other negative um,
2: results. Thank you for that. Um, I, I wonder, This is a, a question that you all might find, obviously, um, working in the field. A simple question, but I think for the average everyday person, um, can you guys just talk a little bit about how someone that might be suffering with a mental health disorder, whether it's uh, bipolar disorder, both one and two, or, you know, depression, clinical depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, or what have you, typically... There will have addiction issues and vice versa. I've seen that obviously even through you know family members before and even with myself. Like I mentioned, when I was severely depressed, I was using alcohol, and I think I was addicted to a certain degree. Uh, maybe addiction is a heavy word for me because I never mm-hmm. went to rehab or anything, but I do think I was using alcohol as that coping mechanism. But it kind of you know goes hand in hand. And like we mentioned earlier, you ha- you can't have the conversation these days without talking about addiction as it relates to mental health and I know Tony you certainly talk about that a lot even with the work that we're doing you have to bring recovery um into the conversation as well
3: as a two-part to that is using it as a coping considered addiction for those who's listening and wouldn't know that Hmm. you know that might say like well like you said I only do it at certain times like I had a stressful day so I went and I rolled up as they would say you know I smoked today because it was a stressful day is that actually them is it creating an addiction or is that addiction
0: as a director of the Office of Recovery Transformation at the, at the Department of Behavioral Health, I have to speak about it in a, from a behavioral health mm-hmm. um, perspective. Mm-hmm. Meaning, and that's inclusive of mental health challenges and um, substance abuse challenges. But on a—so per- let me just go deeper in saying that— um, me personally, I'm a person in long-term recovery. And what that means to me is that it's been over 17 and a half years since I've had a drink or a drug. Good for you. And mm-hmm. because of that, my life is totally, totally different. Yo, my recovery is so good, right, Um, that you wouldn't even know. If you saw me at a stoplight, you wouldn't know that there was a time when I was homeless, when I used to live better in jails and institutions, where, you know, where where I, I couldn't take care of myself. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I was totally dependent. I lived to use and used to live. and um, And so it varies. You know what I mean? To answer the question, you know what I mean? Based on my professional experience and my personal experience, it varies from person to person. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I'm saying? You know, you, there's substance, there's there's abuse, but there's abuse and dependence, you know, according mm-hmm. to the criteria of what made what. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And there were certain mm-hmm. questions that they were asked. You know what I mean? Are you getting in trouble? Do you drink four or five times? Or, you know, do when you drink, do, does it causes relational problems? Does it cause problems at work? Does it cause you to interact with, Law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So if those are things that are happening, then you probably have a problem. You know what I'm saying? Within the last 12 months. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, that's how mm-hmm. they would would gauge it. You know. And so I let me let me let me just say that even with my personal experience and with the work that I do, I'm not even anti. Alcohol or anything like that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because what mm-hmm. I, I deem it as for me is like I have an allergic reaction to these mm. substances. One of the things that I know mm-hmm. is that not everybody that drinks. That's a great analogy. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, just like some people are allergic to peanuts, you know what I'm saying? Right, I'm right, allergic right. to alcohol and drugs. People break out in hives. I usually break out in handcuffs or something mm. like that. Right? <laughs> 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 you know what I'm saying? So, so, <laughs> so, you know, and, and, and so for me, you know, keeping that up front mm-hmm. is really, really important for me. You know what I'm saying? Just educating individuals on the possibilities. One of the things that we know is that one in ten people that smoke marijuana are probably going to have an uh, um, are going to graduate or progress to other uh, um, substances. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So educating individuals. Same thing with alcohol. Not everybody that drinks is going to have a problem. Not everybody that smokes is going to have a problem. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. I understand that. Mm-hmm. However, we need to educate individuals to know that if you do have a problem, Recovery as is and can, you know, um, be the the result of of
2: achieve exactly Mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, Anjali and Joan, do you have any thoughts on that? So
1: um, I agree with everything Tony said. Um, The one thing I will add, more from a a treatment and clinical perspective, is that we view it as a biopsychosocial illness.
2: Okay, Mm
1: -hmm. that it. Is an illness um, biologically because, just like Tony's saying, some people can drink or use something and they don't get hooked on it, whereas other people, you know, they can take one drink and they, you know, may um, get addicted to it. So I think the medical community is doing a lot of research and finding that there are specific genes that may make people more susceptible to substance use the psychological part, there are a lot of people who may be suffering from depression or anxiety or have other problems in their life, um, like you just said, Shanti, and they turn to a substance mm-hmm. to cope. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the social, you know, again, people, I mean, in our society, it's like you can't do anything without people wanting to drink. That's and right now right. with right. marijuana becoming legal in certain states, it's, you know, becoming... The new, um, the new norm. Mm-hmm. So um, just one other thing I'll say from a, a clinical perspective is there are some people who may be born, say, with depression, anxiety, mental illness or something. You know, it's all related to the chemicals in your brain mm-hmm. who may try and use alcohol or another substance to self-medicate. But then there are also people, particularly young kids, may start drinking or smoking pot under the age of 18 that they run the risk of developing what we call substance induced mental illness
3: Mm -hmm. can you um, can you go into that just a little bit and i'll explain why later but can you go into that just a little bit i think i understand what you mean but i want it to be clear
1: Uh, about substance induced mental illness yes okay so we have thousands of neurotransmitters in our brain that basically signals to all the parts of our body how to do anything. Mm -hmm. For example, if you raise your arm, you know, there is a specific neurotransmitter that signals the part of your brain that controls your arm, etc. And so when we introduce toxins, pot, alcohol, you know, I've heard people say, well, pot is it's a, it's a plant. It's a natural product. That's true. It is. But our body and our brain was not designed with the intent of putting any type of foreign substances in our body. And so when we put alcohol, any kind of drugs into our body, we're introducing a toxin
4: hmm.
1: for our body. So, you know, a lot of people drink and say, oh, it makes me feel good. Well, yes. alcohol is actually a depressant.
4: Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm.
1: a chemical um, called dopamine, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. Mm-hmm. That's like our feel-good chemical. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is when we take that first drink of alcohol, it may relax us a little bit. But the problem is when we consume too much alcohol or other substances, our it confuses our brain. It hijacks our brain. And so... For example, you know, the brain may produce X amount of dopamine. Well, if we're putting these chemicals into it that are mimicking Hmm. what dopamine does, Mm -hmm. our brain is going to stop the natural production. And the reason why it's so important with kids, our frontal lobe, which controls, you know, our decision-making, important things, that doesn't... Finish developing until age 25 and so when kids introduce substances into their brain at a young age um, they're basically hijacking their brain
3: mm-hmm Makes sense. Mhm. Yes. Absolutely.
2: Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Anjali. Um. I, next, I want to go back to Tony real quick. Um. It seems so common now to hear that somebody's in rehab, right? Whether it's you know celebrities, mm-hmm. you know, we hear it so much. Um. In Hollywood, as well as in our own, you know, families. What really happens in rehab? What What's the process, and what goes on there?
0: So I mean, it. That's an excellent question. At first, let me just say that not everybody makes it to rehab. Not everybody gets treatment.
2: Not everybody gets treatment. Not
0: everybody makes it to rehab. I need to make that point, right? And just, just, I just want to go back just a little mm-hmm. bit, right? Is mm-hmm. that that, you know, again with educating, um, individuals about the possible effects of, um, just ingesting any type of substance, just like Angelique just, uh, just eloquently just described, you know, mm-hmm. what I mean, especially with young people whose brains haven't developed yet, mm-hmm. you know, there can be some catastrophic results, right? Sure. So now, it, so now, imagine, imagine a bunch of Uh, a population who because of natural stresses, because of every time, especially let me just be, let me call it what it is. People of color, black people, Hispanics, who, you know, everyday pressures of uh, um, the, the socioeconomic pressures, mm-hmm. you know, just dealing with the, the microaggressions of, of, of life, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, and every time, you know, we go and 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 we need to take the edge off. So we take a drink, we roll up, we do whatever we need to do to kind of just ease the tension, right? Mm-hmm. But but what I just mentioned earlier is that one out of ten of those Individuals are probably gonna um, go on to other Advance. bigger and better things, Advance. right? You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like, and and so imagine, uh, imagine that population who needs the help but doesn't have the the the, the, the resources, the insurance. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or you know to get to get. Help. So when you talk about, you know, a lot of people say, "Yo, you know, like marijuana is just a plant, you know, and and it doesn't hurt anybody." But imagine you got a you got a, a community of a hundred thousand people and. And and ten thousand of them need help, but they can't get the help because they don't have the economic means to get you know treatment I mean, because they can't, yeah. get, they, they can't get it. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So yeah. then, so then what happens? You know what I'm saying? And like, the effects that it has on the community, the effects that it has on the family, mm-hmm. the effects that it has. You know what I'm saying? You're talking about um, uh, um, um, you know, just the 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 you know as far as uh. I mean, if they're living in poverty, you know what I'm saying, like now you can't, you won't be able to get a job Mm -hmm. I mean, because you're focusing on other things. You can't pass a drug test. Mm You know what I'm saying? So it has so many other ramifications that we need to talk about and bring to light to the community that, you know what I'm saying, that, that, yeah, you may not have a problem, but the people that do, are the resources available, you know, are readily, are the resources ready available to help individuals that need it you know it's really easy for stars you know what i mean sure. to, for for celebrities
2: and people with high income Comes. exactly or, or yeah, yeah. good insurance but, so so the, let's just say if you are mm-hmm. fortunate enough to make it to rehab
3: and for the rehabs that are almost like mandated like because yeah. i know that if you get in a certain amount of trouble like the state sentence says that you have to go through rehab or you have to be in there for a certain amount of time right like are those rehabs different like what is the difference of and what those? happens in right.
2: rehab just give us kind of a general idea so
0: so as far as outcomes you know what i'm saying you got you got luxury you know what i mean you got high-end rehabs and mm-hmm. then you got the ones that you know just brick and mortar and and you do what you do <laughs> um mm-hmm. but there's basically like um some basic things that happen you know what i'm saying um you know um First thing that happens is, you know, for some individuals, they may need detox, especially if they ingest in alcohol and benzodiazepines. Mm-hmm. That's mandatory. Those can be deadly. You can't, sure. you know, stopping those, uh, you know, drinking like just mm-hmm. cold turkey and and benzodiazepines. Um, mm-hmm. um, there's a really, really, it could be really, really fatal. So detox what are benzo-diazepines? is a, um like um Xanax. Yeah. um you so know, prescription and, meds. prescription meds. They're prescription meds, but they re- re- um they're created to reduce anxiety okay um, volumes um, um anyway just mm-hmm. th- those type of drugs um and that class that class of drugs are very very dangerous and just um you know stopping cold turkey Mm -hmm. then now of course opioids you may think you're gonna die but you're not gonna really die by detoxing right Mm -hmm. but um Mm -hmm. so so the first thing that can happen is detox right and then after detox there's a like you know usually an orientation of the facility you know um one of the and um you know you kind of get you know um um introduced into the norms of the facility the rules and regulations and stuff Mm -hmm. like that there's you know some paperwork that you have to sign then there's a lot of education you know education a lot of things that we've been talking about, like what the effects of drugs on the body, how it affects, um, you know. So
2: they have presentations, if you will, and kind of classes for you guys there.
0: Yeah, m- most definitely. Okay. That's a huge part. Learning about what um, addiction is and what drugs do. Due to me and you know Mm. my family is really really important an educated Mm. person has a better chance of overcoming an obstacle you know the better informed i am the better better equipped i I can be then there's um therapy you know there's individual therapy and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of group therapy okay you know and then you know after a certain time you know there's usually stages to see um like um um levels of progression and then there's the um you know, kind of reconnecting this family therapy too for those that still have their families intact or want to kind of reengage mm-hmm. with their family because what we know is that addiction just doesn't affect the individual, but it also affects the family as mm-hmm. well. It's a family disease, sure. right? So you know, um, educating the family as well on the effects of addiction and how to best support you know their loved ones through this process. And then there's the um, you know, at, you know, after after. And at the end some type of aftercare because one of the things that you know um that 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 we know is that recovery takes time so that 30 60 or 90 day um um period period of of rehab is not it you know what mm-hmm, i'm saying mm-hmm. it's, it, it's it's really a job a, after yeah it's really a lifestyle change yes yeah. yes yeah.
3: yeah absolutely
2: thank you tony You're welcome. um my next question is for joan we sometimes hear guilt and shame used together. What's the difference between the two? And how does this relate to someone struggling with addiction?
4: Well, shame is different than guilt, and it's really a far more significant problem to deal with. Mm -hmm. Uh, When someone's feeling guilty, a person feels only that they've done something wrong. Um, For example, you might uh, feel guilty when you say something accidentally that hurt your friend's feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, and in return, you would probably feel regret and then look for ways to apologize. Yeah. But shame in contrast is um, different in that someone who's feeling shame may say to themselves, it's not that I've done something bad, it's that I am bad. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I love Brene Brown's definition of shame. I've just been addicted to Brene Brown lately. <laughs> but um, she says shame is an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we're flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. Mm. Mm. Which really spoke to me about the power of shame and mm-hmm. and the effects of it long term.
2: Yeah, cause shame can um, truly be debilitating. 100%. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, it can be toxic and paralyzing and just really overall assessing yourself as you know being bad and and not worthy and not um you know being stupid and insecure mm-hmm. and
2: mm-hmm.
4: all those internal things that we tell ourselves when we're feeling shame.
2: Absolutely. Um th- thank thank you Joan. Um this next question is for Tony and Anjali. What can someone struggling with addiction um gain hope and encouragement and knowing?
0: Man, I'll- I would say I would say that it can and will get better if you mm-hmm. you know if you apply yourself. Not that you know, also that the individual is not alone, and that mm-hmm. recovery is not only possible but that recovery is real.
2: Mm-hmm. 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 Anjali,
1: so one of the things that I would say, and it, it kind of goes back to the guilt and shame that Joan was just talking about. Um, the person who is suffering with addiction needs to understand that they are not their illness. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, when people are under the influence, they may do some, you know, things that they regret, but they have to be able to separate the actions or things that they did from them, the person.
2: But what if they're, like, really, really depressed and... You know, the, the, that, that both the depression and the the addiction is causing them not to even be able to snap out of it. I mean, how do you so think when they can you snap out of it? So when you have
1: someone that is with dual diagnosis, and that Thank is you. someone who has a mental health issue and they're in active use, um, the first thing you really have to treat is their substance abuse. Because, again, introducing alcohol or drugs into your system is hijacking your brain. Um, and it would almost be a futile point to try and deal with their depression, et cetera. So once, you know, they are clean and sober, um, it doesn't mean that it has to be, you know, six months out, et cetera, but the first thing is, is we have to get them clean and sober, and it's very important. You know, some people with addiction, they start out in different places. You know, some people may be at the point where when they start treatment, all they need is outpatient. Mm. Um, Some people who have more issues and people who have a tendency or who have a more serious mental health issue, Mm -hmm. um, the tendency is to start them out in inpatient. But you get them through the addiction treatment, which is just like Tony described. And the main thing with that is you are trying to teach them Um, you're trying to teach them coping skills and education and help them to understand. And then you deal with the mental health issues.
3: And, and I have a question for, um, for Tony, Joan and Anjali. Um, what are some of the barriers to recovery and healing?
2: Tony, you want to start? Yeah,
0: we, I mean, we, we've talked a lot, a lot about, um, stigma and, and, and shame, the guilt. Um, I know for me, I always, you know, for me personally, um, you know, it was like Anjali just um, um, just mentioned not the ability or not being able to separate myself from the things that I have done. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Thinking that it was too late for me. <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? Not yeah. seeing a future, you know, um, thinking that I couldn't get past, you know, um... Or, or reconnect to some of the, the, the bridges that I had, you know, burnt down because of my using my criminal record. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm a convicted, yeah. convicted yeah. felon in oh. two states. Violent felonies. You mm-hmm. know? And thinking that, you know, I was, you know, like, what am I going to do? You know what yeah. I'm saying? What's be,
3: the life like after? Exactly. You know yeah. what I'm
0: but, However... Um, I, I am so grateful that I got to a point that, in spite of everything that I thought and everything that I felt, I still gave it a shot and I still showed up, even when I didn't think yeah, that I was yeah. worthy. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. Because what I did was I surrounded myself with people who believed in me, right. even when I couldn't believe in myself. You that's know, I just right. need to say that the opposite of addiction is not abstinence, but it's actually connections. You know what I'm saying? And I connected mm. to positive people who loved me when I couldn't love myself. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, you know that's 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 huge.
2: Mm-hmm. Anjali, Joan um, So
1: Tony uh, Congratulations I Thank mean you. you are truly a testament Yes you are Of how someone can turn their life around and, and do great Um, And I applaud you For that Thank um, you so And much. I appreciate the work that you're doing The community <laughs> uh, I probably would say one of the biggest Barriers to recovery and healing Is when a person is in denial
3: Mmm mm. That's a great you know, one. Uh,
1: That's a oh, great well, one. I can stop anytime I want to. Uh, whatever. I don't have a problem. You have a problem. Um,
4: mm-hmm.
1: You know, the first thing is, and, you know, for those who are familiar with AA and the big book, you know. What is the Step, big book? Is you got to admit you are powerless over um
2: what and, is the and, big book, Anjali? What is that? The big book? Well, I'm
1: sorry. The big, the big book is um, Alcoholic Anonymous. It's um, basically like their Bible. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and that's where the 12 steps come from. And um, the first step is you have to admit that you are, you're powerless over this illness. Um, so for me, yeah, I think the biggest um, barrier that I've seen with people is denial.
4: Joan, do you want to ask? Um Yeah, I just wanted to say, Tony, I want to piggyback on what Angelisa said, that, you know, you truly are an inspiration, and I appreciate your vulnerability that you're sharing uh, mm-hmm. with us.
0: Thank you, Joan.
4: Just <laughs> Piggy piggybacking again, using that word again, but Tony said something about stigma being a huge barrier, and um, I keep quoting research articles, so I apologize, but I recently read about stigma being the second largest barrier to treatment behind cost. Mm-hmm. Mm. That really struck me as something that we need to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, I wanted to talk just really quickly about grief Mm -hmm. because entering treatment for those who are struggling means leaving behind the familiar and entering into the unknown, which can be really scary. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is also, grief can be present in recovery as well when the person struggles
2: with the loss of who they once were. Or mm-hmm. That's
3: a really great point. That is an excellent point, and it's very I didn't true. I look at grief
2: that way. You think it's, it's always just a loss of a loved one, but it's right. that loss within yourself, Right, too. 100%. Right.
3: Wow. And not knowing who you are outside of what you've been experiencing. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot
0: of fear that comes with that. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I used drugs for a long time, for over 20 years. So Joan is right. Like, you know, so... That was my go to. That was mm-hmm. my go to. That was my that was my mm-hmm. partner. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. The relationship started really really good in yeah, the beginning. Yeah, yeah. It mm-hmm. got ugly at the end, but I still loved her. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying. And and so there was a gre- you know there was that 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 mourning period. You know of letting go and then trying to reinvent myself and identify like or just come to terms with who I really was because oh, yeah. I didn't know.
2: Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm. Thank you. Oh, I love this that. Is some last really point. great information, being Sure. That, I, I do it. have. Mm-hmm. Um, we have one last group question. Um, given that addiction is such a complex disease, right, in need of more understanding, what can we do to help move away from the pervasive negative attitudes towards those struggling with addiction and mental illness? Like, how can we erase this stigma, if you will, right, and get people to get the help that they need? I don't know, Anjali, yeah. Joan, anybody want to take it first? I can start.
4: Um, I think for me, it begins with exploring my own beliefs about addiction, and just you know, kind of analyzing where I am and what I need to be aware of when I sit with clients is is really important at this you know at this stage and really going forward for me. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to really quickly talk about language okay. because along with examining my own um, uh, you know thoughts and beliefs about addiction, language can be so powerful, mm-hmm. and for those. And you know, for those struggling and for others, you know, their loved ones, family members, friends. But um, for example, using um, a statement such as a person in recovery rather than addict can take away that stigma and shame instantly. Mm-hmm. Um, naming a family member of someone struggling is not codependent or enabler, as they're called, but you know, saying that they're a partner or family member of someone in recovery. So I feel like these little things that we can do. Um, it's all a process, but just taking baby steps mm-hmm. and examining the language that we're using, you know to see if it it is appropriate or it's it's a kind um expression of of who we're talking to
3: and I wanted to actually say something really brief so addiction in my family is a normalcy like that's something that is extremely normal, but the the thing that I want to really say about it I would say is also patience because it takes a lot of forgiving like I mean for people who we've said that it is a um a family experience and so because it's something that families deal with collectively and are impacted by it takes a lot of forgiving for things that sometimes feel unforgivable and so I would say from my angle it has to be a level of patience mm. and th- what I've seen in my family is that there's usually or often one person that tends to sometimes hold the burden of the people who are um, experiencing addiction the most Mm -hmm. because other people, because once one person has it, everybody else feels almost relieved of it. They can step in when they want to and they Mm -hmm. can come back and forth and say like, okay, I'm just checking on this or I've given up on it or I've done all that I can for it. And then that person's kind of left dealing with whatever that fallout from it might be.
2: Angela, you have any thoughts on that? That's such an excellent point,
1: and I can relate Mm -hmm. um, personally to what you just said. Um, I think, and and this is post-master degree in counseling, because before I went to school, I'm not sure that I really understood this, Um, and that is that even people who felt who suffer with some type of addiction are people and it's not their choice. Like I don't think anybody was ever born into this world and when they were old enough and they were talking about what they aspired to be in their life said oh I want to be an alcoholic or I want to have a drug. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not the case, mm-hmm. and so you know there is, I'm a cause and effect person so all the things that we just talked mm-hmm. about somewhere down the line either somebody had the gene or they just didn't have the right coping skills mm-hmm. etc mm-hmm. that caused them to take you know that initial drink or that initial hit etc um, and then once the biological part takes over they don't really have the control to say no so the uh, stupid campaign that Nancy Reagan did years ago Just Just Say No No. is the most ludicrous campaign that I've ever heard of in my life I had um, a client in treatment tell me oh yeah I was the leader in my Just Say No campaign in the 6th grade Mm -hmm. um so
2: oh, anyway, that, that's my thought. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, I- any final words on what else we can do to, um, you know, move away from the negative attitudes?
0: Yeah, I, I like to say. I like to say is this: we need to continue to have conversations like this. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to get together and have dialogue about about what's really going on. One of the things that we also need to create is opportunities for people in recovery to tell their story. We need to hear That's and right. put faces to success stories. You, you understand what sure. I'm saying? But people need to know that recovery does um that does that it does happen I mean, real quick I remember i was in I think I was in augusta and I was doing this um i was I was facilitating a workshop and there was um some law enforcement there was some attorneys and some other professionals in the room and while I was telling my story, this lady started crying all right and so I'm like, man you know like What's going on? Mm-hmm. Right. So after, you know, I approached her and and she told she she thanked me for sharing. And she, she says that she was an attorney. She was an, a legal aid attorney and that most of her clients were people who had mental health and addiction challenges. Mm-hmm. Right. But because of her job, she only saw. The people that didn't get better. So in her mind, she didn't think mm. that people got better. Mm-hmm. Because it, you mm-hmm. know, that was her purview. Mm-hmm. And that she needed to hear the stories. That and, and, and because she she saw that so much that she was at the point of burnout. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And that she needed to hear recovery stories. She needed to know that people got better. We need to let law enforcement know that people get better. Right. We need to let judges know that people get better. We need to let people in the emergency rooms know that people get better. Because mm-hmm. usually they see the same people over and over again but they don't see the people that don't come back because what happens with us is that we have normal successful lives Thank yeah. you.
2: Thank you. Um, and I, lastly, I want to ask you, Tony, um, can you talk to us about um, anything that DBHDD may be doing around redic- addiction? I mean, um, I, and I, to our listeners, Tony is in the state of Georgia, so he works for the Georgia Department of Behavioral Health and Dis- Developmental Disabilities.
0: Yes. Yeah, so I um, that is a, a, an excellent question. And I need to tell you that we are doing a lot. You know. So the, um I'm the director for the Office of Recovery Transformation. And so what that means is that I'm in everybody's business. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I make sure that whatever they do, the way that we talk about it, that the way that our policies are written up, the way that our contracts are written up, the way that we provide services are on a, a recovery-focused way that are holistic, person-centered, mm-hmm. you know, um, based on self-determination and things of that nature. However, for the, um, there is an Office of Addiction Disease, mm-hmm. uh, um, of Addictive Disease, and that is ran by... Um, Cassandra Price, and we work really, really closely together, right? And because, um, so in this last two years, we've received 7.8 million dollars, um two years in a row to specifically address the opioid problem Oh wow! right and then so one of the things that one, one of the things that we did is that we connected with some of our partner providers to make sure that medication assistant treatment was available mm-hmm. but not only that but also that recovery services were available as well mm-hmm. that we weren't just dosing individuals but that we understood um that that recovery takes time so creating opportunities for people to get better not just in in, in 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 treatment centers, but that they could transfer into the community and actually work on their recovery and wellness there. Um, we then received four million dollars from the last legislative session to um, to provide uh, addiction recovery support centers. Mm-hmm. And so what we did was that we we created 23 addiction recovery support centers across the state of Georgia. And these are places where people can work on their recovery. There's not, this is not a clinical setting. Mm -hmm. These are recovery support settings where individuals who have specialized training to use their lived experience to help others. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the faith based initiative that, um, that we have partnered with silence to shame to talk about, um, Behavioral health challenges with the faith-based leaders across the state of Georgia. Those are just a couple of things. But if um you wanted to know more, please, you know, go to the DBHDD website um, and there's a lot of information there.
2: Thank you so much. You are so welcome. Um, Anjali, Joan, any um, final words or any resources, any work that you guys are going to be doing in the Charlotte area or anything that you've heard about um, on a national level? Um, that's aiding in the support of uh, addiction and recovery?
1: So, I actually have two books that I recommend. Okay. Highly. Um, they are both memoirs of people who have suffered from addiction um, and some mental health issues. The first book is called A Piece of Cake, okay. and it's by Cupcake Brown. Yes,
0: her first name is Cupcake.
1: Oh, wow, okay. All right. And um, it's been out for a while. It was a New York bestseller for a long, long time, but it is a fascinating read. Okay. And the second book is called Dry, and that is by Augustine Burroughs. Mm-hmm. These are two fascinating reads, and for people who don't really understand the disease of addiction, I think this these books um, will shed a lot of insight.
2: Thank you so much. Joan?
4: Um, I wanted to add to that, um, and I know this, I don't think this film is still out, but The Beautiful Boy um, was a, a book and also a recent um, film that was out. But there's also, along with that, um, this is, uh, The Beautiful Boy is based on the parent's experience with his son's addiction, but mm-hmm. the son also wrote a book, and I don't have the title, I'm so sorry, but um, get from his perspective of actually being in the throes of addiction.
2: Okay, Thank And one you.
4: last thing, I just, mm-hmm. you know, wanted to point out, you know, just kind of piggybacking off what Tony said, that, um, you know, the message of hope for addiction is that it is preventable and it's also treatable. That's right. And the longer someone stays abstinent, the longer they can sustain their recovery, So I think just offering that message of hope to those who may be thinking about seeking treatment or maybe in recovery. Mm
2: -hmm. Absolutely. Hope. That is that is the key word, I think, for so much of what we're going through uh, regarding addiction and mental health. Certainly, you have to know um, that there is hope and that you can certainly get through what you're going through with surrounding yourself, as you said, Tony, with the right people, um, not isolating yourself, um, educating yourself. Um, and attending these support groups and and, and really um, doing the best that you can on an everyday basis. So we thank you guys so much uh, for being a part of episode 23 on addiction and mental health. I am Shanti Das, the host of the Silence of Shame podcast with my co-host Free the Vision. We thank you so much for listening. Um, please make sure that you're sharing this information. Um, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, They are now out every other week. We're excited to be consistent in the marketplace and getting the the, um, uh, important messages out to you. So please listen, rate and subscribe to our podcast and make sure you take time, save a life and silence the shame.
4: If
0: you or anyone you love needs a hand, please shine light on the darkness,
3: spark the conversation.
2: It's time we silence the shame.
3: Let's talk about it.